0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today on Political Theory 101, we're back to talking about Weber, we previously had an episode, uh, one of our earlier episodes, Caesar Weber and Charisma, which focused on politics as a vocation and Weber's conception of political leadership and the role of charisma and charismatic leaders. Today, we're focusing on a very different part of Weber's thought, a very different parts, really everything but that. Uh, so we'll, mm. we'll open up with uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about Weber is this emphasis on many gods and demons. So for, uh, in the medieval period, you have a political theory that's oriented around subjugating the state to the one true God, right? Right. Uh, Through the Catholic church, the state is underneath uh, the church and the king is underneath the Pope and the king is underneath God, right? And so because there's a moral consensus, the political unity derives its legitimacy from being in accord with that moral consensus, right? And that's why in the Middle Ages, it's so important to maintain that moral consensus and heresy is such a deep political problem, not merely a spiritual or religious problem, but a political problem, right? Now, Nietzsche says that by the time that you get to the late 19th century, God is dead and we've killed him. That's not the way Weber views it. For Weber, what we have is a kind of proliferation of many gods and demons, many different values, right? Uh, and it's, there, there are many gods. So whereas with Nietzsche, there are many different aesthetics that we can have. We can kind of construct values and, and uh, try to impose them. With Weber, what we have is many deeply felt moral convictions. So they're still moral because you know, they, or theological or metaphysical, but there's a lot of them rather than just a few. They haven't been aestheticized to the degree that you see in Nietzsche, right? And so as we've discussed in the past with the German ideal of freedom, the German ideal of freedom is that you can pick from among lots of different values, lots of different gods and demons, which you can worship, you can follow. And the way the German state accomplishes this is through this kind of civil society space, this proliferation of lots of different organizations in which a person can be socialized together with other people, where you can choose which uh, which, which civil society organizations to take part in, which ones to engage with, right? But Mm. the state has to create that space, and therefore the state is creating the space for freedom, right? And so Mm. for Weber, there's this deep emphasis on maturity. There's got to be a, a recognition on the part of the people who enjoy the space for freedom that they can't be free unless the state exists to create and sustain the space for freedom. And therefore, whatever gods or demons they might have, those values have to be compatible with the state, right? And for Weber, the unwillingness to recognize this is a kind of immaturity. And Weber talks about people as, as being politically mature or immature insofar as they recognize that their values must be compatible with the state, right? Now, I see a certain rhyming in this, a certain rhyming. It's not the same a certain rhyming with John Rawls, uh, the American liberal theorist, who argues that reasonable people recognize that they can't uh, impose their particular comprehensive doctrine or theory of the good or theory of justice on the whole of society. Mm. Right? They can't impose that because of the burdens of judgment, the fact that reasonable people will disagree because it's very difficult to negotiate these kinds of questions, right? So in the case of Rawls, the reason for this is not explicitly stability, but it's a kind of moral argument about needing to make space for reasonable disagreement. But it's still connected to stability because for Rawls, there's this emphasis on stability for the right reasons, right? We're going to have stability because we're giving space to everybody to have lots of different moral conceptions, right? A kind of plural space. And similarly with Weber, there's this emphasis on a plural space. But with Weber, it's not as moralized as it is in roles. In Weber, it's more expressly about maintaining political stability. Hmm. But I see an interesting rhyme there. And of course, because Rawls more heavily moralizes his theory, Rawls's theory is much more confident, especially in the version that Rawls comes out with in the 90s during the end of history and political liberalism. It's a quite confident liberal solution, right? Weber is always kind of aware that there's a maturity problem in Germany, that there are lots of people who are not able to subordinate their values to the state. And with Rawls, there's more of a hope or expectation that people are by and large reasonable. And that the number of unreasonable people are un yeah, it, it is quite small and quite manageable. And Rawls's mm-hmm. theory depends to a significant degree on our believing that most people are reasonable and that the category of the unreasonable is not too large. Right? So it relies on it being realistic to say that there's a liberal consensus a liberal consensus on being reasonable, i.e., on respecting the burdens of judgment and therefore respecting value pluralism. Weber is much more acutely aware, and this I think to some degree stems from the time in which Weber's writing, uh, because Weber is writing not during a period of liberal optimism, but during a period of political instability and turmoil in Germany. There's much more awareness on the part of Weber that this maturity is not obviously forthcoming and that the state is going to have to intervene pretty heavily in the cultural sphere to bring it about. So one of the debates that's come out of Rawls is this perfectionism, anti-perfectionism debate, a debate about how much the liberal state should be involved in trying to get people to think about the world in particular ways, to affirm particular comprehensive doctrines or conceptions of the good, how prescriptive and paternalist should the liberal state be. Now, in these perfectionist, anti-perfectionist arguments, they often pitch it in terms of relatively mundane things. Like, should the liberal state fund libraries or fund uh, poetry or support uh, the arts? Hmm. Should it fund various kinds of artistic uh, or religious or uh, other kinds of value traditions which don't have an obvious practical uh, market value, or which would seem on the market to not be something which there's demand for. By contrast, it's very clear if you're if you're looking at Weber that this management of value pluralism is at least as much about suppressing stuff as it is about encouraging stuff. Mm. They're uh, the kinds of civil society organizations which nurture immature behavior are for Weber a potential problem that have to be dealt with by the state and the Mm. means that the state uses to deal with this stuff. Ultimately the, the characteristic means of the state is violence for Weber. It's not the only means that the state uses, but it's the characteristic means. So with Weber, there is this possibility of the state using violence to preserve freedom, i.e. to preserve itself, and to preserve the value plural space that it created, right? Hmm. And so this possibility of the state making interventions into civil society to encourage or discourage particular amateur doctrines or movements is live. right? Now Hmm. in practice, I think that by and large states don't just use violence to accomplish that end because that looks repressive right? Generally, Mm -hmm. liberal states don't violently police civil society. They find ways of getting civil society to police itself, right? Because what are civil society organizations? They're the organizations which inculcate value and therefore they're the ones which potentially inculcate maturity. And you get this emphasis from Weber on political education and this need to educate the immature classes, the immature organizations, right? And this manifests as the state, not you know, necessarily violently drumming people out or drumming organizations out, but finding ways of introducing political education into mm. the immature areas or mm. into the immature organizations. And this can often be accomplished by finding ways to get organizations to self-police or to self-censor, mm. right? So some you know, more, more recent examples going out of Weber's period a bit that might be more familiar to the audience. If you think about, you know, the Red Scare in the 50s, what's going on with the Red Scare is that there are all these people who are or have been members of communist organizations, and they're being blackballed from other kinds of private organizations, not just say the state or the State Department or government jobs, but from everything, from the film industry, from all sorts of different kinds of organizations. Right. And so instead of banning communist organizations with the state violently drumming out the communists, you get a situation in which a person who would think about joining or participating in a communist organization must reckon with the fact that all these other civil society organizations are going to exclude them and deny them opportunities to move up if they join. Right. And not only if they're a member, but if they've ever previously been a member. Right. Hmm. Or if they've ever been a dupe or a fellow traveler or someone who has enabled people who have been members, right? So this creates a climate where not only can you not be a member, you can't help anybody who's been a member. Hmm. And in that climate, the communist organizations are not socially tenable as organizations to, to be part of. So people can't join them anymore, even if they want to. It doesn't require any legal prohibition because these different private organizations are doing the work of political education, right? And this is what the liberal state ideally wants. It doesn't want to have to do political education itself in a direct way, because that would look like a form of totalitarian state socialization, right? Which Mm. is why for the most part, the liberal state doesn't really use uh, public education to inculcate values, at least not traditionally. Public education is supposed to be about preparing people for work, preparing people to enter the workforce, but it tries to appear neutral with respect to substantive value, rather than train people up in particular religious views or particular uh, political ideologies. And of course, in practice, particular teachers, particular schools deviate from this, but the public school system is not supposed to be so thickly ideological. And that's why stuff which is controversial will tend to not appear in public school curricula, right? Compare that to, say, the university, which is nominally separate from the state, even if it's a public university system, the university is administered separate and is expected to not be a mouthpiece of the state in the same kind of straightforward way. In the university, you have much thicker doctrines, much uh, more intense arguments from people who are believing very different things and who are teaching very different attitudes to life, right? And Mm. the same goes for churches, much thicker, much different, right? But the reason that these organizations can be much thicker is because they are in some way nominally not the state. They're not the state. They function as this kind of private civil society. They're in this place that this, this plural space that the state is protecting. Yeah. Right? So- these organizations if if they're to do political education if political education is to occur privately right so there's the education that's to prepare you for work that can be public because to some degree the economy is public business but some degree but more morality and values that is meant to be almost entirely private and all the state is really meant to do is to protect the space in which people develop their values in the private civil society. So Hmm. the state, uh, if it's to do political education, it has to find ways of getting its civil society organizations to do that political education for it. Because Hmm. if the state starts doing political education, then you don't really have civil society. You have Hmm. some kind of public culture, right? And so in most of these cases where we see this kind of disciplining occur, it's occurring with the civil society organizations functionally doing it. Now, oftentimes the state will do things that encourage the private organizations to do this. So for instance, if state actors, if politicians are saying that people who are communists are traitors to the country and dragging communists before Congress and interrogating them, right? That doesn't mean that it's suddenly become illegal to be a communist, but it does mean that they're kind of creating a climate in which everyone will view being a communist is not okay, right? Hmm. And similarly, if you, if you drag a bunch of people in front of the Congress to, to say, for instance, that uh, you're running a tech company that is an unethical tech company, that is proliferating unethical discourse, that is negatively influencing the political process, right? if you do that, you're not censoring what is posted on social media. You're not regulating speech on the internet, but you are creating a climate in which if the tech company doesn't regulate speech on the internet, then the tech company appears to be part of a problem, right? Whether that problem is the alt-right or fascism or white supremacy, or uh, in other contexts, it could be communism or left-wing stuff, right? The aim there is is to get the tech companies to discipline uh, the society so that the state does not have to do that, right? Mm. And in this way, you you can be members of different social media networks. You can be on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. But if all of those social media networks are regulating speech in broadly the same way in doing a kind of political education by pushing certain things up the algorithm and pushing other things down the algorithm to get people to have a consensus liberal attitude and approach to politics, they're all doing that, then your choice Mm. is 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 within a curated pluralism, right? Yes, you can choose the interface of Facebook or the interface of Twitter or the interface of Instagram or whichever you might choose, but you're getting broadly the same internet because it's a curated mm. internet and curated in broadly the same way, regardless of which place you go to, right? Mm. And that's, that's the way that the state comes into the space of civil society and regulates it, right? Regulates it often without being seen to regulate it. Uh, mm. Similar kind of thing occurs in, say, the state's approach to unions in the 70s, right? In the 70s, the state starts to think of unions as, as radicalizing and as causing economic trouble, right? So in the United States, we, elect, we enacted a lot of right to work laws. Now, right to work laws appear to increase the rights of the individual. But mm. in practice, they greatly diminish the prevalence of unions. And in diminishing the prevalence of unions, they diminish the pluralism of civil society organizations that you can realistically join or be part of. Even if you want mm. to be part of a union, it's more difficult to be part of a union because of right to work laws. And certainly it's more difficult to be part of a functional union, right? And that diminishing of unions and of their resources diminishes their ability to affect the discourse and therefore to uh, be part of the plurality of value, right? Mm. Now, sometimes it can be a little bit more heavy-handed than this. In the case of, say, uh, Emmanuel Macron's recent attempt to regulate Islam in France, that's a Mm. much more straightforward Example of this kind of regulation and in continental Europe, it's more often pitched as a straightforward role for the state where the state is straightforwardly in a mediating role. Right. Mm. Uh, In the Anglosphere, it is less commonly an overt move by the state and more commonly the state influencing private sector behavior by its speech acts, by its discursive behavior or by the discursive behavior of various politicians who whip up uh, public attitudes toward particular actors who are not behaving in the way that these political actors would ideally like them to behave. Mm. In the case of France or Germany, it's more overt. And so you have, for instance, the overt regulation of religion in Germany and France. Whereas in the States, that religious regulation will not be overt, but there will be lots of politicians who will say that the influence of, of certain kinds of churches is a problem and problematize those churches and try to make those churches not socially acceptable, hmm. right? And all of that is about curating the pluralism. And of course, the risk with curating the pluralism is if you're seen to be curating it, then suddenly it doesn't feel like pluralism. Suddenly it feels like a, a structured choice yeah. as a kind of agenda setting and as even potentially totalitarian behavior. So if it, it's too obvious that the state is, is curating it, then that becomes an issue. Yeah. And the other issue is, of course, a curated pluralism is that it can start to look like everything is the same and that the differences among the choices are just aesthetic and that you don't really have many gods and demons, but just a lot of different flavors of the same popcorn or the same ice cream. Hmm. Right? And at that point, you don't really have the kind of freedom that someone like Weber is talking about. Mm. So, and for this reason, the role of the state in regulating civil society is always fraught because if the state over-regulates civil society, then of course you don't have freedom in the liberal sense, even on a liberal view. Mm. But if the state does nothing, then stuff will proliferate in the civil society space, which is potentially illiberal or anti-statist, Right. So the liberal state has to intervene, but it can't be seen to intervene. It has to intervene, but it can't intervene too much, lest everything just start looking like the same thing, but in different aesthetic varieties. And this is the difficult situation in which liberal modern states find themselves. They have to regulate. And that's why the German solution to the problem is not as elegant as it first appears to be. The German solution to the problem of of morality you know, where morality gets handled in the private sphere by civil society organizations which are encouraged and protected by the state both encouraged and protected that all looks very elegant if you can assume political maturity if you can assume what Rawls calls reasonableness right but once you concede that you can't assume political maturity or reasonableness that you can't assume people that people will in this space naturally gravitate toward liberal perspectives Mm. then the state has to take a role in regulating the space. And that role in regulation will be endlessly difficult because it will endlessly verge on too much or too little. And the only way to get the right amount is to engage in a constant dialectic with the context in which the liberal state finds itself. Mm. And that is a dialectic that the liberal state is very likely to fail in one direction or the other right? And that puts the liberal state in a situation that the German state in a situation that's not that different from the French state, right? The old argument from, say, de Tocqueville about the French state is that the French state has no mediating institutions anymore. Because of the decline of the nobility and the priests. there's been a decline in mediating institutions which help the individual interface with the king, the subject and the king, uh, find a way of, of coming together. Through the priesthood and through the nobility. But once you've gotten rid of those things, then you oscillate between trying to put government in the hands of the individual, which results in anarchy, and putting government in the hands of the king or the emperor, which results in despotism. And you start violently swinging, right? In much the same way, if you can't actually find this balance, if it's just an illusory balance, then you're going to swing wildly between. A space that looks like Weimar Germany, where you have endless proliferation of all kinds of illiberal stuff and all kinds of anti-status stuff. And the situation you get in Nazi Germany, where you have a state which is very overtly, uh, completely involved in shaping the culture in a very straightforward way, where the choice is very illusory. And indeed, where the state is not even liberal and not even attempting to offer a choice. right? but it do, it doesn't have to be a nazi regime it can be a, a broadly liberal regime which is too heavily interventionist for true pluralism to obtain and a lot of people reacted to the kaiserreich and to the kulturkampf under the kaiserreich the attempt by the kaiserreich to construct a national culture as being too illiberal right Where the legitimation of the of the kulturkampf is that the german state is is you know there to promote freedom and that that is German national culture is the promotion of this freedom. Hmm. But the culture camp can itself seem to be the thing which destroys that freedom. It can seem to be an excessive intervention by the state which overly curtails the pluralism or is an overly overt construction of the civil society realm by the state. Right. Hmm. So this is some of the stuff that I, I find especially interesting in Weber uh, and in his work particularly on maturity. Uh, And his discussion of, say, the junkers, these uh, rising bourgeois Germans who are, are putting their market interests ahead of the interests of the state. And how immature, how immature is that, right? Now that argument highlights an enduring tension in liberalism, which is that the market always is inducing people to place various values ahead of what is in the interest of the state or in the interest of state maintenance. And the market frequently puts the state in a position in which the state will be endangered unless it gets more interventionist, right? And yet the Mm. liberal state is, of course, committed to the market. And this Mm. leads to the the kind of Hayekian move, which is to say that the state should intervene uh, as much as is necessary to keep markets going, (laughs) but no Mm. more than that. And that's the same kind of, well, uh, you know, the state has to intervene, but to a point, and the point is now nebulous because it's not clear how much the state has to intervene to protect markets. And of course, the Keynesians who are arguing with Hayek go, yes, exactly. The state must intervene as much as is necessary to protect markets. And this is how much it must intervene. It's more than you think. Hmm. And that has become a, a big part of more, more recent liberal arguments is just how much do we have to intervene to keep the market system going? What's the bare minimum? What can we get away with? Right. Mm. And that is the same kind of swinging dialectic that is liable to be failed in either direction. Mm. That's one of those very difficult to find the golden mean means. Yeah. And German political theory is, is full of those, uh, even though it It hoped so much to escape them and find real syntheses. The thing about dialectical thinking is that dialectical thinking is not amenable to synthesis. What it is amenable to is blurry spots. Mm. Blurry spots which are not clear and attempts to nail those blurry spots down and say this is this or this is that leave you highly prone to mistakes. As soon as you try to categorize or define the blurry spot, highly prone to getting it wrong. Hmm. Anyway, I've, I've gone on for quite a while. I have a lot of initial thoughts about Weber, it turns out, today. Edmund. Mm. Edmund is, by the way, the one who kind of pushed us to do Weber today. Uh, what's been on your mind when it comes to Weber? What have you been thinking about?
1: Yeah, well, on, on the topic of um, Weber's discussion of maturity, um, Weber makes the contention in um, one of his um, important but underlooked pieces an um, in inaugural lecture he gave in 1895 on uh, the nation state and economic policy um, that as you say Benjamin that um, the maturity um, of the of the bourgeoisie is an important um, Concern, or perhaps the immaturity of the bourgeoisie, should be an important political concern. And uh, Weber's critique being uh, not necessarily that uh, the economy uh, per se is having an overlarge role in modern society, but that the way the values that the economy produces um, and that are carried by um, the bourgeois and professional classes. Can lead to a kind of political um, immaturity. Um, And Weber says in this lecture that uh, he himself is um, bourgeois, and he's probably losing a more liberal, loose conception of the term bourgeois than uh, Marx's conception of the owners of the means of production. Um, And bourgeois often is taken to mean middle class in a more general sense, and that's probably the sense in which. uh, He's using the term here, um, and Weber is saying that though he is bourgeois, he doesn't have the values of other bourgeois people. Um, of course, for someone like Marx, this is a contradiction in terms because uh, class, po- whatever class position one is in, determines um, the kind of values that uh, one is meant to have. Uh, so, uh, Weber is saying that we need more. Maturity from um, from politicians and from professionals, but it's difficult to see how that can happen on his own conception. If this is an inevitable product of the developments in the political economy, um, and I think there is a part of Weber that uh, wants to uh, stay rooted to political economy, um, but there's another part of Weber that wants to run away from political economy and talk about value and talk about. The different things that people value at uh, different times. And this is expressed perhaps most clearly in uh, Weber's uh, 1905 book, "The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism," where he argues that Protestantism, particularly Calvinism um, uh, and Calvinists um, as a uh, as a social grouping. Uh, had an important role in carrying forward some of the values that made possible the spirit of capitalism and the modern work ethic. Um, but I, I might like to say one thing about biography, that Weber, um, in the 1890s, went through, uh, 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 towards the end of that decade, and uh, the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century, uh, went through a deep mental um, breakdown um, spurred uh, in part by the passing away of his father. And one important factor of Weber's life is that he and his mother grew more similar over time. Um, And um, his mother had this rather ascetic attitudes to life. Um, This attitude of, not being too interested in worldly luxuries, interested in getting the job done, whereas his father was uh, reported to be uh, more interested in having a good time and over time, uh, Weber, as he uh, deepened his studies um, on topics ranging uh, from kind of ancient history um, to uh, contemporary uh or his time contemporary economics and politics um and the study of religion too um Weber over time grew more similar in terms of his personality um to his mother and led a life that in some senses I guess one could compare to uh the philosopher Immanuel Kant uh for being not overly uh interesting but uh Unlike Kant, um Weber did make uh, some strident political uh interventions um, Kant also made political interventions, but somewhat more utopian tracts like towards perpetual peace, whereas uh Weber was interested in actual politics and was considered for uh positions in uh the German government um, but Weber also um, by the 1890s, as he became more estranged from his father, um, found himself confronted with a, a crisis. The origins we, we, we are somewhat obscure, but with a clear, immediate catalyst. And Then he went through several years of not really writing anything. and He came out the other side and wrote The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, which is... Uh, a big break from his earlier work, which is really focused on um, economics and politics, has some questions of value, but still related um, to issues uh, pertaining to uh, the modern state and capitalism and pertaining to hard facts of uh, political and economic life and the history of of those facts, um, but Weber does have this turn. Uh, that follows his crisis, and this turn involves him becoming more interested in the study of religion and in this way he follows uh, uh the sociologist Emil durkheim, who uh he didn't meet but is often um, compared with because both uh, Weber and Durkheim, along with Karl Marx, are held up as the founders of sociology um uh along with Comte, too, who is somewhat sidelined in discussions of the foundations of modern sociology. Um, but uh, Weber comes out with this text, which tries to link political economy to the study of religion. and He takes as uh, his opponent in this discussion, uh, no less than Karl Marx, um, or more, genu- more generally, uh, the historical materialists, who followed Marx, historical materialism being a fr- phrase that uh, Engels coined rather than um, Marx per se. And um, what Weber argues um, in this text is that it's uh, not as easy as Marx claims it is to make the case for the primacy of economic forces in history. That capitalism, in Weber's view, didn't create itself. Um, and there is a nuance to this which i might add towards the end about how neither did marx think that economics uh, modern economics created itself um but to start with weber's view of what gave rise to modern capitalism uh for weber um a number of things gave rise to modern capitalism and it's not simply um the cause he identifies um Loosely as the Protestant ethic, um, but the Protestant ethic does have a role in the generation of capitalism. And there's you know, discussions on exactly what kind of causation is Weber talking about here. Is he saying that without the Protestant ethic, that capitalism wouldn't have come along? Uh, would it have taken later to come along? And it's not entirely clear. Um, and one feature of Weber's writings after his crisis is that. He is um, not necessarily as precise as he is in his earlier writings, um, but he also opens up to a number of new and interesting perspectives. Um, and one perspective um, being religion. Weber argues that Calvinism is an important uh, source of um, capitalism, but you know, Calvin was also drawing on uh, stuff that had come before him. And the most important doctrine that Weber identifies in Calvin is the Doctrine of Predestination. Uh, and This has uh, uh, roots in discussions of free will um, through Christianity and through its development. The argument that uh, Weber makes is that this notion in Calvin um, that, um, quote, uh, by God's providence, Uh, wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which uh, he has destined. And, uh, quote, salvation is freely offered to some, while others are barred from access to it. Now, this is quite, um, in a sense, a dark view, because it implies that individuals don't have control over their destiny. Their destiny is laid out to them by divine providence, and they have no guarantee that they will come out the other side um, among the elect. They have no guarantee that they will be um, chosen. That they, they will have been chosen by God um, to uh, to have an eternity uh, in paradise. They could equally have an eternity in hellfire, and there is no guarantee which one it will be. Whether it will be eternal reward or eternal punishment. And this creates salvation anxiety. And this salvation anxiety leads to um, a desire, um, Weber claims, among Calvinists for reassurance that uh, the religious believer here is one of the elect, that they are... um, that they are indeed predestined uh, to be saved and not predestined to be damned. Now this is quite ironic because if you think about it, um, the one of the distinctive things about Protestantism vis-a-vis Catholicism is the turn from uh, an ethic of an ethic of acts um, to an ethic of faith um, one of the and oh, before Calvin you have Luther claiming that only faith will uh, be a guarantee of salvation and not acts. Um, and I mean, this is, among other things, uh, why Weber argues that it's not Luther, but Calvin, who provides the basis for the Protestant ethic and then uh, the birth of capitalism. Um, and, uh, and another reason is that while for Luther... Um, all callings in this world um, have equal value. Partly because of this notion of uh, faith, uh, such that it is not really the act per se uh, that guarantees salvation, but the but the faith. For, for Calvin, uh, uh, for Calvinists more than Calvin, because Weber argues that this isn't strictly speaking <laughs> capitalism coming out of the mouth of Calvin, but Calvinists taking some of Calvin's doctrines. And following them through in such a way that, as they encounter uh, the complexity of the modern world, they um, they they begin to develop a certain new orientation to life, Um, and partly due to this desire for reassurance, which leads Calvinists to a particular kind of calling, Uh, and a calling is a is a religious uh, enterprise or vocation, Um, and. The kind of calling that Calvinists are meant to embark on is one that involves, uh, to link back to Weber's biography, asceticism. And to be ascetic um, is to be um, resistant to the pulls of um, particular desires and appetites. And uh, This, of course, goes back to how um, uh, mystics and uh, hermits uh, reputedly had certain attitudes of asceticism and rejection of the luxuries of cities. But it also goes back to certain monasteries, and um, since Weber, some sociologists have argued, well, you know, what about Catholic monks, Um, and and so particularly. you know, certain branches uh, of uh, Catholic uh, monasticism. Uh, why can't these branches uh, like the Benedictines um, be afforded some kind of um, uh, role in the genesis of a new kind of uh, work ethic? Why does it have to be uh, Calvinism? Um, and affiliated sects like Pietism, or Lutheran Uh, a a Lutheran sect which uh, um, Weber affiliates with this uh, Calvinist um, uh, work ethic, with this Protestant work ethic. and Pietism, by the way, is the um, religion of um, Immanuel Kant's parents. Um, And so Weber responds to this argument that um, people have made since then in the book. Uh, And he says that the the problem with looking at uh, Monasteries is that there, the asceticism is not fully developed in a this-worldly sense. Uh, too often, there is this a notion of um, otherworldly asceticism, which can't really be applied to the real world, which doesn't involve the kind of work ethic associated with modern industry. Um, but with uh, the Protestant work ethic, particularly uh, among Calvinist sects, uh, we get this uh, this worldly asceticism um, and an application of the attention to, uh, to God uh, alone uh, and not to appeasing particular social or religious authorities. This individual relationship to God, the implication of this and the implication of predestination is that the individual has to practice uh, a life which is devoid of the things which would not be appropriate to someone who is going to be saved. Um, because though individuals' behaviour can't change whether they're saved or not, the way in which uh, uh, God, according to Calvin, makes the decisions at the beginning of time whether someone is going to be saved or damned is that the people who are going to be saved will show it. And the people who are going to be damned will show it. And the saved will show that they're saved by not responding to uh, material wants and needs. Now, how does this lead to capitalism? Well, it leads to a capitalism according to Weber, because if you're not responding to luxuries, um, but you're focusing on what God uh, has planned for you, then you're not going to be like an aristocrat, um, just sitting on the land and not doing anything with it. Um, but, but, but neither are you going to be uh, a, a subsistence uh, farmer. You're going to be someone who wants to fulfill their calling in the best way possible. Someone who can fulfill their role in a way that is um, very committed. And Weber thinks that this, this commitment to the calling will lead individuals to practice a work ethic that will lead them to, for instance, calculate the means necessary to attain their, attain their ends and will not, be, not respond to anything other than this, this technical rationality. And so Weber tells the story of how initially, with the Protestant ethic, there is this value orientation. But over time, this is translated into a pure valueless technical rationality. And so a lot of people use Weber nowadays to say how, oh, look, nowadays we have this disenchanted world, as Weber put it, where, um, as Nietzsche argued, God is dead. um, And and so there isn't the kind of commitment, that religious commitment that once existed. Um, What do people do in the shadow of the Nietzschean death of God? Well, um, for Weber, what they do um, is they follow this instrumental rationality of just calculating means necessary to attain ends, uh, calculating uh, whatever is necessary to attain attain profits. Um, but um, the origins of this instrumental rationality. Uh, this amoral economic rationality, ironically for Weber, have their origins in a particular kind of moral religious rationality. And that, for Weber, is the rationality of uh, Protestantism, in particularly Calvinism. And uh, there have been various arguments since then about whether he is right and various statistical analyses on the correlates of um, of, of Protestantism versus capitalism. Um, and there is one recent piece by um, Sasha Becker, uh, Stephen Paff, and Jared Rubin called The Causes and Consequences of the Protestant Reformation, which uh, finds um, Protestantism to correlate to greater degrees of um, capitalist enterprise. Um, but it also finds Protestantism to be rooted in other factors, um, if it finds, you know, an explanation for Protestantism, and the problem with Weber's account is whether or not Protestantism has a role in causing capitalism. His account doesn't account for what causes Protestantism itself, and the argument that is made in in this article is that uh, there are certain non-religious causes of of, of Calvinism, just as um, The Protestant religion um, um, has certain non religious effects, according to Weber. And, uh, you know, for instance, um, printing and printing competition is one of the supply side factors given uh, for the ideological diffusion of the Protestant religion. Um, But uh, one of the uh, demand side factors identified um, in this article is political autonomy. Uh, and this is found among 249 examples in the Holy Roman Empire between 1517 and 1600. Uh, and this argument that the autonomy of the state or the or, or the principality is an important cause of the Protestant religion makes a lot of sense because if we think about um, who adopts the Protestant religion, it's often princes trying to break away from the Catholic Church for various reasons which have a lot to do with geopolitics. And An obvious example is Britain, because uh, Britain breaks with Catholicism, um, uh, or at least breaks with the Pope, and then later breaks with Catholicism more broadly, um, under Henry VIII, um, who is seeking... Uh, a marriage with someone other than Catherine of Aragon because he wants more kids and wants to marry Anne Boleyn, but can't because the Pope doesn't let him. So he makes himself the head of the church. And this means that um, Britain from then on is no longer subject to the Pope um, and um, over time becomes more and more Protestant. um, With the exception of uh, his uh, uh, daughter, uh, Mary with Catherine of Aragon, who briefly takes... Britain back into the Catholic fold. From then on, um, Britain is uh, more or less uh, heading in a more uh, Protestant direction. And uh, one consequence immediately of the Reformation of the break from the Pope is the expropriation of the monasteries. And um, and we can um, there is a barbarian reading of the expropriation of the monasteries, um, which says that. Uh, well, look what's happening. All these monks with this asceticism are going out into the world unless they might be spreading uh, this asceticism, which actually doesn't quite fit with Weber because he's arguing that it's Calvinism, um, not Catholic monks who's spreading this asceticism. Um, So that argument doesn't quite hold. The other argument for the significance of this is Marx's argument, given in Part 8 of Capital, where Marx argues that the break from Rome leads to um, the... um, the proletarianization of, uh, of monks, uh, where monks are forced to work for a wage when they didn't previously. And what's more, the dissolution of the monasteries uh, enacted um, by Henry VIII through um, one of his um, foremost servants, Thomas Cromwell, um, very... Uh, uh, bureaucratic figure in the way, and we might talk about Abe's view on bureaucracy later on, um, you know, the, the dissolution of the monasteries enacted by the early modern Tudor state um, has a consequence of uh, a lot of people who um, weren't previously um, working on land uh, owned by uh, Certain aristocrats or private landowners finding that they now have new owners. And, and uh, there's a big land grab that goes on where uh, a lot of uh, um, middling class people, uh, a lot of aristocrats get a lot of new land. And uh, one, one, one thing that goes hand in hand with this is that over time in the 16th century, uh, you've got a lot of um, competition over. Um, the wool trade and increasingly the cotton trade. And there's a lot of pressure to increase uh, wool production to compete among other places with um, Antwerp. And uh, this leads a lot of people to um, enclose their fields. And this means that um, peasants who previously had common land can no longer work on that common land because it's been enclosed by the Lord. Um, and or by other relevant landowners, and so this means that a lot of peasants are forced to move into the cities and become wage laborers. And so we have the story here that Marx gives in part A of capital, of the modern state, or the early modern state, taking certain moves, partly out of um, state interest and partly due to pressure from uh, emerging middle classes as well as from factions of the aristocracy. Um, to allow, uh, or at least not stop, these enclosures from happening which lead to the emergence of modern capitalism. Um, and so we're seeing this story in Marx, which is not too different from Weber, because what both Marx and Weber are arguing in Part Eight of Capital and in the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, respectively, is that modern capitalism and economic order has uh, some non-economic origins in the legislation passed by the early modern state according to, uh, according to Marx and by the decisions taken and not taken by that state and you also have this story in uh, 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 Weber of, of religion being a, a, an important cause of the emergence of modern capitalism and I think if there's anything that comes out of uh, this it's the notion that as that Weber suggested that while Marx's theory is often taken to imply that what matters is the economy that perhaps there are th- some things that matter that aren't strictly speaking um, economic and among those things are um, morality and economy people's values and the institutions and that material conditions aren't the only things that drive history forward so are institutions. And ideas, um, and Marx and Part A of Capital is emphasizing the modern state's role um, in the genesis of capitalism, and Weber is arguing for the significance of the Protestant religion.
0: And I think the- right, and there's a there's a significant difference there, right? Yeah, yeah, because there is a
1: difference, but
0: it's connected. Is it, though. is it the idea that's driving it, or is the state driving it? Because if the state yeah. is driving it, the state is grounded in having a set of powers and material capabilities. Yeah, mm. right. And a set of power competitive influences which drive its behavior. You know both its need to maintain security internally and its need to compete with other states. Mm. You know, as you as you always like to put it, trade and war, uh, or yeah. legitimacy and conquest. Now, these are the yeah. things that the state has to worry about. And if it's the state which is driving the bus, then you still have a lot of material factors at play in the state driving the bus. And Mm. all of it's kind of enmeshed. But if you can say that Protestantism drives it independently of the state, if it's the idea of Protestantism that's driving it. Yeah, the the fact that Protestantism is a compelling idea, then that would that would be a much more idealist interpretation of all this. Right. Mm. And there's material here that you could take in either one of those directions. I think Mm. that the point that you make about states wanting autonomy Mm. from the church and then states as they get more centralized, instead of worrying about their internal conflict uh, so much, they get more externally motivated as they get more secure. So, initially, states are trying to get stability internally and to get that stability, they want to be less dependent on the nobles and the priests, and less mm. dependent on the church. And then once they get that, then they worry about interstate competition. Yeah, because they're yeah. freed up, freed up to worry more about interstate competition.
1: I mean, the thing is that these early modern states are reacting not just to economic pressures, um, but they're also reacting to the needs to. Legitimate themselves to subjects partly through religious stories and religious ideas. Um, and th- this means that not only are you know, pressures of trade are more important in driving forward uh, the early modern state systems evolution. Um, but the these states also have to adapt to the existing legitimation stories of the time, which include not just the dominant Catholic narrative but also these emerging um, Protestant sects, which are causing trouble for these uh, for these existing narratives, and the argument in, in the article um, by Becker et al. twenty sixteen that uh, I, I cited does argue that there are factors that lead to the Reformation, including these states competing with each other, and uh, lots of uh, states in the Holy Roman Empire wanting alternative legitimation stories, and therefore um, um, housing people like Luther in an effort to. Challenge the power of the Holy Roman Emperor and of uh, and of the Pope to gain more political autonomy, to increase their power, to develop uh, the forces of um, production and destruction more. Um, but there are also these interesting um, ways in which the Reformation, though it does have these uh, economic and military causes, it does seem to have its origins in the development of. Trade in late medieval Europe and the formation of these of these new middle classes, and also in in warfare and the way in which warfare led to more state competition. You know, it has its origins in trading classes and warring states, but it also has some of these strange kind of correlates which lend some credence to Weber's view. Because um, the article well, does this, find this is the question. Yeah,
0: what's the what's the order in which we take this causally, right? R- right. Because I mean, it seems to be a bit of a- The Marxist yeah. argument is yeah. that, of course, there is cultural stuff, which goes along with any change.
2: Yeah, 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 right? yeah.
0: But that that change will ultimately be driven by competitive political needs, either market competition or state competition or raison d'etat. There will be some kind of power-oriented Motivator. That's what you find in Marx. And that's what you find in realist political theory too. The emphasis is a little different. Marxism tends to be more economic and realism tends to be more state focused. But Mm. in both of those theories, they're both materialist in the sense that it is distributions of wealth and power and attempts to shift those distributions.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Which are ultimately leading to different ideas taking hold, becoming popular, Spreading, shifting, yes. and so on. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conversely, you could take it in the other direction and go that it's the ideas that are actually driving the bus. Mm. And that Protestantism spread because Protestantism was compelling, not yeah. principally because of these other things. Mm. Right? So uh, that, that's the, when you try to have it, when Weber tries to have an argument with Marx about historical materialism. It's an argument about premacy. Mm. Because neither Marx nor Weber are going to deny the facts of what happened. It's what priority do these facts have? And especially when we're predicting the future, what kinds of facts are going to matter more?
1: Yeah, yeah. Can, right? can, can I? Can, yes. One interesting thing about this article, which is quite, it's quite a fun read because it's got these tables on it, on the... On the associations between uh, the Protestant religion and certain trends in capitalism, and so I, I read out some of the some of the causes of the Reformation that they listed, but there are also some of the purported consequences of the Reformation, um, and the associations that are given, and some of the economic uh, correlates include uh, increased income tax revenue, city size growth, entrepreneurship among. Religious minorities, social ethic, uh, whatever that means, uh, choice of secular university, major, and occupation. And there are also some governance implications that are proposed rise in parliament, rise in state system, transnational advocacy, legal rationalisation, lots of labour there, establishment of state churches, social discipline, poor relief, social welfare pr- regimes, new institutions for canonising saints, and also dark consequences of the Reformation, including witch trials, votes for Nazis, anti-Semitism, suicide and suicide acceptability. And that links to Durkheim, who argued that uh, – that there was a greater propensity in his book on suicide argued and there are similarities between Durkheim and Weber but they didn't they didn't collaborate as such um Durkheim argued a greater propensity for uh, suicides among Protestants and among Catholics partly due to this more individualizing ethos in um uh, Protestantism than capitalism and strictly speaking what Weber argues isn't that the Protestant religion causes capitalism? But there is an elective affinity between the two, between market rationality and the rationality of some of these Protestant sects. And
0: Right, but Marx wouldn't yeah. disagree with that. Marx would yeah. simply say that of course that ideology develops in the places where capitalism is dominant. Yeah because capitalism encourages that kind of way of thinking that kind of way of thinking is more competitive the as thing is, capitalism is emerging the thing is and capitalism, it, what is really changing yeah, is the yeah. incentive structure
1: i mean the question is what i mean that capitalism doesn't really exist um, in its full mature sense in the in the reformation um, and it, I mean, I think there are these new classes which arise because of trade. And I guess that would be perhaps the revised view. The here incentive
0: that, structure, right? The, the changing yeah. of the incentive structure is pitched as what is causing people to value different things. Mm. Yes. Right? What, what, what does it mean to win on Darwinian competition systems? And what does it mean to win in the market? What does it mean to win politically? What kinds of qualities and traits do you need to have to win? Mm. Right? Those are the things which... For a Marxist, will ultimately determine the kind of ideology or the kind of things that are valued in the society, right? Because mm. for Marxists, the culture is going to come out of what is associated with winning economically or politically.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: you would have an incentive to be uh, to have the kind of work ethic which Weber associates with Protestantism in Mm. a society that is moving toward capitalism. Mm. Because in such a society, having such an attitude would be competitively advantageous. And therefore, gradually over time, the society would reward that way of thinking. So while there may have been lots of different ways of doing Protestantism, and for this reason, for instance, Weber does not credit Luther with the work ethic. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Certain ways of of relating to Protestantism are likely to win out over time because they are socially rewarded, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Weber says, economically and politically. Yeah. And Weber says that while the Puritan wanted to be a man identified with his calling, we have to be. So there was a shift from the value rationality that might have been near the beginning there. Of the capitalist story, according to Weber, to a more purely technical rationality. I think that is the most interesting thought here. Not necessarily that the Protestant religion is having a causal role, um, and of course it depends on the kind of causation. It's probably not straightforward, efficient causation or uh, you know hard structural causation going on here, but more of a-
0: especially if you consider the degree to which the Romans had a market economy. Yes. Yes. And all of this is not you know, uh, only present in, in Britain in that context. And a lot of the literature that's focused on, especially the older literature that focuses on the emergence of capitalism, focuses on this British context and on the specialness of it.
2: Mm. But a lot
0: of the things which are in the British context and which lead to economic growth are in other contexts. Well, They're just right. also combined with other things which inhibit the kind of capitalism which you end up getting in Britain.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, I Ste Weber Weber is attentive to uh, to these to these facts and develops his sociology of religion in a in a more global sense um, as time moves on and uh, increases his attention uh, to, to these different um, to these different ways of approaching. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm not value. talking about different
0: religions. Yeah, yes, I'm yes. talking about. Yeah, different material material contexts that have some, but not all of the prerequisites for industrial capitalism. Yes, And so bear striking similarities in many respects to elements of what we would think of as capitalist thinking, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like for instance, the meritocratic emphasis of Confucianism emerging out of the Warring States period in China, right? Mm. We don't think of Confucianism as Western or as capitalist, but there's a lot of meritocratic emphasis in Confucianism. Oh, yes. In part, because Confucianism emerges in a highly competitive context with moderately centralized states competing with each other and therefore looking for every possible advantage. And when you're in a more competitive context and you have to look for every possible advantage, then you have to think in a more instrumental way about surviving the Darwinian competitive mechanism, yeah. the more demanding the Darwinian competitive mechanism is, and the more capable you are of surviving, the more you will think in terms of survival, right? Yeah, because it's yeah. the people who think in terms of survival that survived Darwinian mechanics. Mm-hmm. So that leads to ideas which are optimized for surviving that context.
1: Y- yeah, yeah. Yeah, because so
0: yeah, as you move into a, a setting where you don't have Catholic hegemony, you have a lot of different versions of Christianity which are competing with each other. Mm-hmm. The types of Christianity that are going to prevail are the types that competitively work. Yes, right. Yes, yes. And so, in this way, when people talk about Protestantism as a cause of capitalism, they're noticing well, certain Protestant ideas mirror capitalist ideas very closely and Protestantism in general happened before capitalism and so therefore they want to say that those Protestant ideas cause capitalism but of course Protestantism is much more amorphous and blobby
2: in the beginning yeah
0: but it becomes much more singular because of capitalism capitalism encouraging the Protestant ideas that are most competitive because what do states want they want religions which facilitate their competitiveness Mm. so the protestant the versions of Protestantism that will be taken up by states are going to be the versions that are most amenable to state competitive projects right in much the same way that Christianity in its own initial you know Catholic variety that's not uh you know, there was a lot of different types of Christianity in antiquity and a lot of different Christian ideas, but Catholicism wins because it's the type which fits with the roman state
2: yeah yeah
0: right so I I like to really play up the degree to which the state shapes this stuff,
2: Yeah, because I
0: think people are constantly downplaying it, in part because of this tendency to treat the state as superstructural, not just by Marx, but also by theorists who emphasize culture or ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But the state has a much more proactive role. And it's not that the state individually is so agentic or so free to do whatever it wants. The state is locked into Darwinian competitive systems. That highly circumscribe what it can do, and therefore highly circumscribe its choices. And so there is a state rationality, a raison d'état, and raison d'état precedes all of this. Mm. A state rationality, which causes the state to select certain kinds of religions or select certain kinds of market systems. Yeah, well, I, I would say, I,
1: I would say, in def, in defense of Marx's view uh, about class struggle that. It is the state and class. And even before the rise of capitalism, you still have classes which are playing a role and competing with each other. You might not have the bourgeoisie in the 1500s, but you do have these, um, you know, these classes other than simply aristocracy and peasantry um, and the church. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah. But class struggle can only really come to a head in a context where the state is mainly unconcerned by external threats. Class okay. conflict can only really happen when the state is free to look inward right but there
1: but isn't it, but if if um there are these kind of economic and political springs springs of the reformation um and a certain uh class position that um that people that are associated with these different religious sects that emerge that there is a degree to which um, some of this uh, mercantilist uh, trade that's taking place in the early modern period um, is, uh, and in the late medieval period is, is having a role in in shaping these different classes and therefore in shaping the different religions. I think it is mostly the state in this period. I think the modern state precedes capitalism, and we've got to focus on the state first as the, as the primary driver of the emergence of this new class structure. But I think there are, there is some class competition in this early period. It's not wage, labor, and capital per se, though we are well, seeing the beginnings of that.
0: The yeah. issue with, with class competition in a context where the state is not free to look inward is that that kind of internal division, if it gets intense, will cause the state to be conquered and subsumed by another state. So mm. for a state to stay in class conflict for a long extended period of time without being subsumed from outside. An internally divided state does not survive long unless it doesn't face serious external threats.
1: France wasn't um, conquered after its wars of religion um, in, in, the, in, in the 16th and early uh, 17th centuries.
0: Well, France was not having wars of religion because it was weak internally. France was having wars of religion because it was strong internally, because France was strong enough mm. to try to centralize power around the monarchy. Mm-hmm. And France was in a stronger position relative to its neighbors in that period, which is why yeah. France is looked at as a state that might invade and destroy other states. Right? Yes. So because France is in position to potentially invade Italy, as it did during the Italian wars, France is free to have a religious conflict. Okay. Because France is strong, so it's this, free to have an internal conflict. So
1: this is a case of class having a role. Because of that freedom that state power provides.
0: Well, I'm just saying that you can't have a situation where a state is both threatened by external competition and internal competition at once for very long. You can have it, but not for very long because a state which is facing extreme threats in both of those areas at once tends to get destroyed. Right? That's that's interesting. Is is vice versa
1: the case too? That the the freedom of the state to to do things is somewhat constrained by uh how strong the domestic um class structure is and how strong the, the ruling classes hold over the state is. Um and that what the state might do in terms of foreign policy might be strongly shaped um, by that like in the late 19th century when the British state engaged in imperialism um Hobson and successors like Uh, like Lenin argued, not because it was necessarily good for the um, British state considered as a whole, um, but because it was good for the bourgeoisie which had captured the state by this point, or had began the process of capturing the state.
0: I think if a state has got security externally, it's then free to do stupid stuff internally without paying a price externally for that stupid stuff. Okay. So it's not disciplined by the threat of state competition. Yes, I see what you so mean. That's it, why, it, yeah, in this case, That's it's why big too. empires, yeah. the narrative around yeah. big empires is always a decadence narrative about internal decline. Because a big empire doesn't face a peer competitor that can invade it and destroy it very easily, right? Yeah. If an empire falls to an external Entity, it's usually uh, an entity that we think of as much weaker than itself. And that happens because it has first been internally divided to the point where it can't even manage minor threats. Right? Mm. So if we think about, say, a a Chinese dynasty that falls to uh, migratory tribes from the steppes, we think of that, and certainly the Chinese think of that, as the product of a Chinese state being weakened enough that it can fall to a threat that a strong Chinese state can meet. Mm. Right? And So the issue there is that there is internal division in China. And the reason there's internal division is that the Chinese state gets so strong that it doesn't have to worry about anything outside it. And so it becomes completely free to become riddled with internal division, right? With no disciplining force to compel it to stay unified, right? So the unification of the state depends on the state being in a competition with external threats. Mm. And so once those external threats are dealt with, the state is then free to get Divided internally, and that weakens it to the point at which it can then be subject to external threats again, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And so you have this constant process of the state becoming strong enough to manage the external, and then because it's strong, weakened internally.
1: Yes, which links, which links nicely to um, the idea that we get in uh, some. A 18th century thought summarized by uh, East van hunt um, who, whose work I've cited in previous episodes who, who argues that there's a logic of war and trade that you get um, very clearly emerging in in the 18th century and of course it existed before then but we, we get this um, this emerging more clearly um, as wars get more intensive and therefore trade gets more intensive, um because the way in which the modern state developed was through using capitalism to increase state power. And uh, capitalism was initially subservient to the modern state, and it was only as capitalism developed that it developed an ability, as Benjamin has suggested, once the modern certain modern states got some security um, like Britain, for capitalism to come over and take over the state. Um, and for that relationship of subordination of capitalism to the modern state to be at times, um, perhaps such as under uh, the um, uh, uh, post-1980s neoliberal uh, settlement, um, for that relationship to change a bit. Um, and That's part of, I think, a a broader cycle uh, that we get that I think goes back to uh, Plato's Republic uh, where Plato describes a, a cycle of regimes um, between more and less unified regimes. His cycle goes from the more unified regimes to the yet less unified regimes. And what happens is that there's class struggle uh, among the classes. Uh, and one important um, catalyst of this struggle, at least in the middle of the process, uh, as the uh, regimes pivot from um, more. Unified to less unified structures, to, from ruled by honor um, as as the the second regime to ruled by uh, money as the third regime, from timocracy to oligarchy. Uh, the role of the producer class in Plato city, a trading class, becomes more prominent, and so Plato tells a tale basically of uh, a trade made class division leading um, to. More division over time. That's not the one cause of the uh, disunity of the state. But Plato does seem to think that as trade develops, it seems to lead the state to divide up, which aligns quite neatly with some uh, more recent contemporary uh, historical sociology on on the topic that suggests that war tends to unify states while trade tends to divide them, um, because war leads to the state to develop a bureaucracy. an institution which Weber also paid attention to, where there is a set of impersonal rules and hierarchies that mean that instead of uh, patronage and family and friendship relations being the basis of um, politics, instead it's impersonal rules uh, and bureaucracy. Like the market is uh, for Weber an impersonal institution based on abstract uh, technical rationality. Um, now, now by the yeah. way,
0: in the course of of Approaching that subject, you introduced a third logic, right? So you talked about war and trade, but just there you talked about patronage and personal. Yeah, systems, I think that is the. Thir- right?
1: I think that is a third logic, a social,
0: no, yeah, social personal thing. Persons, yeah. personal systems like that are not efficient from the point of view of trade or from the point of view of war. They are uncompetitive, mm. right? They are based on people's values, uh, people's felt kind of. Connections to other people and who they like and who they don't like, right? Which doesn't have to have anything to do with what is effective at competing in trade or war. I don't think that's. When is a state free? Yeah. When is a state free for ethics of patronage Hmm. and nepotism? Yeah. And who I like and who I don't like and personal choice? Yeah. When is that free to proliferate? When a state is very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And faces no threats of any kind. Yeah. And when it has a political system which enables a an elite to dominate that system without having to be economically dynamic. Mm. Right? So this is part of the objection to a kind of landed gentry that runs an empire because a landed gentry that runs an empire once it overcomes the threats to the empire It then becomes very undynamic because it just owns land. It doesn't have to come up with anything economically. And it becomes very much about patronage and personal connections and who you like and who you don't like, right? Mm. So part of why a lot of theorists of democracy like democracy is that because democracy introduces a competitive element to the institutions, a ruling class which is economically ineffective can even during a time when there's no war or no significant threats, if it's not delivering, say, higher living standards or better quality public services or whatever it is that people concretely want, that ruling class can be displaced through the electoral process, through a competitive mechanism that is internal to the state and not simply reducible to trade or to war, but a political competitive mechanism that is democratic yeah, right? That's what people like Asa Maglo and Robinson like about democracy. That's what people like Douglas North like. That's what people like Joseph Schumpeter like, right? Now, if you have a democracy where that kind of dynamism doesn't operate, then you're either getting something like patronage or you're getting domination by trade or by war. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And that's, right? yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Can r- but yeah. that seems to be the trouble with these imperial states: is that it's not just that they get a lot of trade, but also if they're a landed gentry state, they get a lot of patronage.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, in a way, we, we, we get this, this cycle. Um, I, I think it is a bit of a Platonic cycle of, um, of war-made states and trade-made uh, classes. I mean, which is a bit of a modern framing on it, but you can see this, I think, in antiquity. So. Um, but
0: at the, but same the, time- the class conflict can come out of trade or it can come out of patronage, yeah. and it looks different depending on which way it comes out, right? I so mean- in an old-fashioned society where there's patronage, you have terrible mismanagement uh, of the peasantry because you have these elites that are just making decisions based on who they like and giving stuff to people that they like, regardless of whether those people do a particularly good job, right? And mm. so you get things like, like famines are just, just absolute misery in the rural areas because the elite is just so indifferent to the peasants because it doesn't feel in any way meaningfully threatened by them, right? Now, when the, you get a peasant rebellion, the peasant rebellion is not an occasion to correct your economic behavior. The peasant rebellion is an occasion to have a war, a small war to crush the peasant rebellion. And the act of having to fight that war has a, has a briefly disciplining effect, right? Mm. But it's not like the peasants really get you in the kind of class struggle that Marx has in mind, because the peasants always lose the peasant rebellions. They always lose, right? Because the peasants have no wealth or power in those kinds of societies. They're in no position to win, right? Mm. They're rebelling because they have no alternative but to rebel because they've been reduced to a state of misery, right? Mm. And the main function of the peasant rebellion is to discipline the landed aristocrats a little bit, not by making them better people in terms of the way that they rule economically, but by forcing them to go through the process of fighting a war, a conflict of some kind, which has a a disciplining effect on people, right? Mm. When we talk about class conflict in a capitalist context, we are not generally talking about, because we're usually talking about democratic capitalist states. So, we're not usually talking about a patronage network system. Not usually. We're usually thinking about it in terms of free market competition, which is creating classes, right? But of course, if our political system loses its dynamism, if our democracy becomes undynamic and therefore incapable of swapping out elites with different elites, right? If you just end up getting different faces of the same elite all the time and there isn't really any meaningful competitive difference, then at that point, you can have the possibility of class conflict that's driven by patronage. Mm. And class conflict that's driven by patronage occurs not because the working class is strong and is challenging for hegemony, uh, challenging the bourgeoisie for hegemony. It occurs because the working class is so weak that it can't use democracy to impose even a moderate level of political competition. And so the elites have more or less captured the democracy, have the run of it, and are now running it so badly that they can only engage in forms of peasant revolt.
1: Yeah, which kind of, uh, I guess, reminds of um, the uh, of Michel's iron law of oligarchy, that any institution over time will become more oligarchic, inevitably. And I guess that's partly, as you say, um uh, um, not just for economic reasons, but also for these social reasons because of patronage. Um, and so, if it's, not, if it's not market reciprocity that's driving it, it's, um, it's social reciprocity that's driving it.
0: Right. Now, if that can happen in a democracy, then at that point, the democracy has lost its principal advantage, which is the dynamism,
2: right?
0: Mm-hmm. The yeah. principal institutional advantage of democracy is having a competitive system that's purely political, that isn't straightforwardly connected to trade or war, but of course is influenced by the state's performance in those categories. Yeah, and if you don't have that, then you just have a patronage system, which is being legitimated through elections. Yeah, and at that point, what you have isn't really different from a rentier class and an antique empire.
1: Hmm. And in a way, these these three processes—war, um, uh, trade, and Patronage you've now added, Benjamin, um, correspond to three key institutions: the state, which which is principally there to manage warfare. and to stop warfare from spreading and becoming a civil warfare. Uh, The state for Hobbes is the alternative to civil war, Um, but it's also there to stop the war through the threat of warfare, uses the threat of warfare to stop warfare, Uh, and it monopolises the means of violence, according to Weber, um, because it is trying to prevent violence from becoming uh, something that is uh, a total kind of anarchy and free for all. Um but of course uh, that's not actually how things have worked in history because the alternative to the state has not uh, simply been anarchy but been the family historically um which corresponds to uh, patronage and uh, states wage war um, but families um are, are found, found uh, founded upon um patronage personal ties yeah yeah and i guess yeah. Pa- patronage is a kind of extended uh um i mean it, it's a bit different though because patronage is uh giving and taking gifts and it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, and it can be of outside of family i
0: mean it, it's but the it's, main yeah, thing is yeah. that yeah. it's personal ties personal yeah. ties who i like and don't like who i think is respectful or not respectful
1: yeah and i guess it's kind of different kinds of reciprocity so you've got I mean, this reminds me of uh, Francis Fukuyama's uh, books on political order, where Fukuyama is much like Weber in trying to anchor his uh, concepts of the state. Uh, for instance, Fukuyama places a lot of emphasis on bureaucracy um, um, in the history of uh, political orders and how bureaucracy and the market are quite strange if you consider um, how um, humans began this great journey. Um, and it began with the uh, with hunter gatherers transitioning from uh, kinship relations um, to uh, reciprocal relations, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, some archaeologists um, have um, argued uh, is that um, the the use of um, uh, early hominins of um home bases this is an argument by the archaeologist Glyn isaac um is that um with the origins of food sharing um we hunter gatherers uh, started to develop this ethic of of giving and taking and sharing gifts as the basis of social reciprocity um the i scratch you're back you scratch uh my idea, which you know, arguably has its roots in um, in human ancestors too, um, but with the home base, uh, with having to go back to a central location and share food, not just each individual consuming food for themselves, but share the food with each other, and not just a parent-child relationship, but the whole the whole community um, sharing the food that is scavenged um, or, or, or gathered, and it is usually for. Uh, Hunt together is more a scavenger. And, and the maintenance thing. of yeah. that
0: relationship over time, right? Yeah. The maintenance yeah. of reciprocity over time, that in- entails loyalty, right? Mm. And we get things like fidelity, right? At treating someone like a brother. Or you say the Confucians, right? I made, I made the point that the Confucians are meritocratic, and that's a bit like uh, capitalism. But the Confucians also say that you should never expect a son to betray a father, no matter what the father's done. Hmm. Right? Because the son has a duty to the father, which is based on familial role and which supersedes any other kind of abstract moral duty, which you might ascribe to the son, Mm. right? Which is not how we like to think about it. We like to go, well, that would be nepotism and nepotism would be wrong. That's a kind of impersonal emphasis. And in general, in modern democracy, we constantly, constantly praise impersonal values. And we constantly talk down the personal stuff and identify the personal stuff with corruption and decadence and all of that. Mm. But human social relations are founded on personal stuff. Mm. And as long as human beings are involved in the social world, reciprocity plays a big role and reliable reciprocity, stable relations of reciprocity are going to play a big role in what makes us feel like we can do business with each other. Mm. Right, so this attempt to make patronage go away, I think it's it's been a big part of instrumental reason, a big part of bureaucratic rationalization. Right, this mm. attempt to make the personal go away. Mm. Right, and therefore the bureaucrat follows the rules and doesn't pay attention to personal ties. Mm. Right, or the you know, person who's following capitalist trade logic does what is financially good business. And doesn't worry about, you know, are you betraying your workers by offshoring the plant? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you
0: know, these people who have worked for you and you're supposed to be loyal to them, right? It's it comes from the the fidelity. Yeah, maybe instead of calling it patronage, we call it fidelity or reciprocity. It comes from that, our idea that yeah. you know, there's something wrong about someone for capitalist reasons just moving their company to wherever they can make the most money. I guess, right? That's yeah. rational from the point of view of trade. Yeah. And it's rational from the point of view of interstate competition even, to a significant degree, in many cases, depending on how it's being done. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. it's definitely not rational from the point of view of reciprocity, well, I mean, I think of, it, of human personal feeling, I'm nervous about calling reciprocity a selective
1: mechanism. I, I guess this is my problem here. Though. I think reciprocity is itself something that is selected for, and of course the reason why hunter gatherers or their ancestors, um, you know, a, a, a couple million years ago uh, or a couple of hundred thousand years ago, it's a long evolution of reciprocity. Um, at
0: least well, from an a- evolutionary standpoint, you can say that. Right,
1: right, right, but- and that's why it emerges. Reciprocity emerges for evolutionary reasons to manage the competitive game of, of yes, natural but now evolution. socially,
0: yeah. I think I think reciprocity is in our nature at this point regardless yes. of whether it continues to be sociologically in our interest reciprocity okay. is and not even just in our nature we see it reciprocity is clearly evident in all kinds of apes and many kinds of animals
1: yeah but that's that's, many that's, kinds of animals that's, that's more part of who we are than a, I guess a selective mechanism but that's mechanism. the thing when we
0: talk about social competition Mm. Social competition involves having to adhere to the way human beings are. I see right? what you so mean. So something yeah. Is, yeah. is evolutionarily selected for in the past. Even if if we were to extend history forward another couple million years, it would stop being the thing that would be evolutionarily selected for. Socially, our social competitions that are near term are affected by what has already been selected for evolutionarily in but, the past.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would distinguish so, between processes and conditions. That you've got the conditions of. Social evolution or natural evolution, but those aren't the same as the processes and war well, and in trade terms of processes. Yeah,
0: in terms of legitimacy, I don't think that it is possible to legitimate a system that is purely interested in what is competitive from the point of view of war or trade. Oh, of course, no, precisely I precisely because yeah, yeah. so it does become a competitive mechanism. Oh, okay. What satisfies us on a reciprocity standpoint does become one of the competitive mechanisms that shapes ultimately the kinds of states we can have. Yeah. Yeah. What makes us feel like we are in stable social relations that we can trust, right? Yeah. That is one of the competitive mechanisms that states have to pay attention to and balance against what is good for trade, what is good for uh, war. And if they ignore it, yeah. then we tend to get certain kinds of malaise. And it we can call that malaise class conflict, but it's a little bit different from the class conflict that comes uh, out of trade or from pure economic the, activity. The thing
1: is, selective processes are used in a very precise uh, kind of, I, I kind of use I, I use the framing of trade more as selective processes. As I'm going to try to lay out in, in 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 future future research and whatnot, is is a kind of somewhat Darwinian processes of, um, or a somewhat Hobbesian process. And Marx actually connects these two things. Um, hence the reason why my research is going to focus on relationship between uh, Marx and Darwin. Uh, but you know one. Uh, one interesting uh, tendency uh, in trade and war is that, and indeed a tragic tendency, is that those who do not play by the rules or don't succeed in winning the game will not just face a kind of reputational
0: damage, but will face uh, loss of life. Um, no, I think that's true for this too. Okay. I think it is. So, mm. of course, most of the time in trade, we, we don't talk about loss of life. Eventually, trade eventually leads, You know, if you are bad at trade, eventually your economic weakness invites a situation where you can be hurt, mm. right? But it's not immediate. And in the same thing here, failing at the patronage game is not immediate loss of life. But mm. part of why human beings are so sensitive to ostracism and to reputational damage is that it is on some level eventually connected to loss of life. That's yes. why we're averse to a- it.
1: And there is, there is one other selective uh, mechanism here, because the, the minute you brought in social selection, I thought, well, what about what about poor Weber here? You know, what what, what are we doing about uh, uh, religion and ideology? And I think it's not as significant as the others, because I think people, when it push comes to shove, are motivated by their social um, or economic or uh, you know biological needs more than they are by abstract um, moral. Uh, Conceptions, but I think there is a role. Um, there is somewhat of a role that uh, that people's that people's reasoning about different moral principles plays. It's not much of a role compared to the others.
0: Oh, no, um, mostly it comes out of the other stuff. It does mostly what, yeah. what people tend to normatively. when we're just talking about descriptive stuff here, I'm not talking about what I think is right or what I think is good, but just in terms of purely descriptive, you know, how do people behave? The ideas which are going to become common in a society become common because they confer competitive advantages on the people who hold them.
1: Yes. In terms of- Competitive on
0: whatever competitive metrics there happen to be. In terms of- Dominant ideas have to be competitive ideas. Now for that very reason, I think that generally dominant competitive ideas are often wrong because they're the ideas that people who are trying to win competitive games espouse. Uh, And therefore, Mm. they are instrumental from the beginning, and they're not interested in the good for itself or the truth for itself, but for these things in the service of winning various kinds of competitive games. So all of these moral conceptions that become very dominant are distorted by the fact that they are conditioned by winning a competitive game, right? And people make this critique of Christianity all the time. One of the basic critiques of Catholicism is that it is shaped to meet the needs of the Roman state, and therefore it isn't based, Catholicism's doctrine is not based on what is good or what is true, but on what services the Roman state's interest, right? Now, conversely, I would say that every religion, every significant religion that has large numbers of followers is, of course, shaped by the fact that it catered to some power structure at some point and therefore was spread by that power structure. No religion spreads itself successfully at scale without making its way into power structures and therefore rendering itself amenable to those structures. And for that reason, ideas and religion cannot be causal at scale, just can't be. Mm. The only way they spread is by sucking up to some competitive mechanism outside of them. Without that, they can't be competitive and they can't spread. Mm. So it's only you know you could you could maybe talk about religion or ideas influencing one particular person with a very odd set of, of values, but at scale we can't sociologically discuss ideas as having force.
2: Okay. Hmm.
0: At least this is what I would I do would they, say, do they have and any I force? recognize that my position is relatively hard line on this, do, but I do think I, I do, mean, do think it's wrong. I right. think they have less force. Do they have any force? Do you think they can't you can't win unless you have fit into a competitive but game? Yeah, part of what makes yeah. the stuff that fits into the competitive game compelling is that there's something about it which sounds like it gestures at what's good. It doesn't have to have anything to do with what's good to do that. It just has to be structured in such a way that it aesthetically appeals to the particular population in question. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. It doesn't actually have to have anything to do with the good. So there is no competitive mechanism with respect to what best adheres to what is morally true or what is morally good or the form of the good or, or God or what's right. None of that has very much real world impact.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's probably... I would say I would say there is priority here, um, but I, I wouldn't. I don't think it's just uh, war. War is hundred um, percent. Trade is hundred percent. patronage is a hundred percent, and then um, morality is zero percent uh, in terms of causal power. I think it's more of a kind of a priority order of you've got war at the top, and then trade, and then patronage, and then ideology. That order.
0: No, no. I want to go further than this. I want to go further than this. I want to say that an idea cannot spread unless it sucks up to one of these other things. Okay. And that therefore, its spread is derivative yeah. and dependent upon these other things. And the yeah. way that the idea seduces us is by convincing us that this is not so. That's why these moral and religious ideas that are, have so much cachet, that these big organized religions have so much cachet, because they have been developed in such a way that they will appeal to us. Mm. but. Right. I don't think that any large-scale religion can have anything really to do with what is good or true, and be a large-scale religion.
2: Hmm.
1: Um. Yeah. I guess this goes back. To each of these processes—war, trade, patronage, ideology—are based on four basic interests, which kind of come out of Hobbes and Plato. Uh, you've got survival. Uh, uh, You've got the yeah the desire to survive, uh, the desire to um, satisfy other related kind of material desires um, for for luxuries, for instance. Then the desire for for recognition and for honor uh, and and the pursuit of wisdom and and. Um, um, Plato calls uh, the three after after survival, which he takes as given, uh, honor, money, and uh, wisdom. And the way in which he constructs the Republic is through the, the good ruling, but through there being the good ruling on the back of a balance between the honor loving. Uh, soldiers or auxiliaries, and the uh, money-loving uh, producers, um, and uh, the e- each class plays a role in the breakdown of the state. E- even uh, the ruling class plays a role because the unity of the philosophic guardians breaks down over time, and uh, this leads to the beginning of the cycle of the cycle of regimes and the class I'm, conflict.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Plato, by the way, yeah. because I think that the reason that ideas cannot be that the <laughs> That ideas can't really drive this, yeah, yeah. is that once you try to render this stuff as something which is capable of spreading in the world, now you've imi- you're, you're engaged in a ki- type of imitation, right? Or as Plato calls it, emesis.
1: Yes, yes.
2: And
0: because the mechanisms that spread stuff through the world are relatively indifferent to what is good, To make the good something which is spreadable is to distort it. Are
1: they totally indifferent, Benjamin? Are they totally? Is anything, is anything in this world totally indifferent from the good? Or is everything an imitation, as Plato argued? And therefore, nothing is totally divorced from the good. There are degrees of goodness. But if Plato is right, then in a sense, what we mean by evil, or just not just immorality, but amorality, is is. Not even the absence of the good, because technically, uh, there is no such thing as privatio bonnet, as Augustine argued, the absence of the good, which Neoplatonism argues. For Plato, everything is just degrees of goodness, and there are lesser and greater degrees of goodness. Some things are just not very good, and some things are, are more good.
0: If, if, as you say, and I think this is right, the good is to be identified with balance, mm-hmm. each of these competitive mechanisms is indifferent to balance. Each of these competitive mechanisms pursues its instrumental end.
1: I I, I don't I don't agree with that. Indifferent
0: to everything else, right? Trade when when you're thinking in terms of trade, trade doesn't care about what makes sense for war, and trade doesn't care about what makes sense for reciprocity. When you think in terms of trade, to think in terms of trade is to erect a dualism between trade and war, okay. between trade and patriotism. I agree with that. So to think in terms of trade is to negate the other, yeah. right? And so to go, well, what makes good economic sense is necessarily to engage in an unbalancing, right? And the same thing goes for war. What enables us to win the war? To think in this way is to engage in unbalancing, Or if you think in terms of what uh, you know, produces fidelity and, and uh, strong kinship ties and feelings of social connection, yeah, that also oh. is uh, something which produces imbalance. To but, but so think about yeah. any of these things one at a time yeah. produces imbalance. The good involves combining.
1: But here's the right? thing, the, the, the imbalance leads, can lead to balance. This is the, the irony of history, that you get these unbalanced social processes of, of competition leading somehow to cooperation and this is one of the great ironies of these selective processes that they evolve this competition but in order to manage competition as hobbes argued that in hobbes state of nature where everyone is at war with everyone else what happens these the the way to to, to to win this struggle is to form confederacies with other people to form these to form these little mini states in order to compete in this way but the, the, the irony here is that you're getting um, this peaceful Leviathan that Hobbes describes uh, this this unity that which, you know, one could argue in contrast to Hobbes, isn't a perfect unity. But it is still a kind of unity, a still an imitation of unity. Out of the greatest disunity ever right, known. But of
0: course, in being an imitation, it is already a compromise with the good. So it's already a deviant. Well, yeah, and of what course. is dictating its form is not principally the good. Not principally but the, good. the accommodations. But the good right? can't so be. So when you go through yeah. the cycle of regimes, it's it's the accommodations which are gradually eating away at it more and more and more to the point where it has no, by the time you get to the end of it, it has nothing to do with what you have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, From the very beginning, as soon as you render it as being, as soon as you render it as something which accords with having bodies, Mm. it now is to some degree already off the rails and to some degree already dictated by the body. Right? Mm. And so that's why human beings cannot be Good. They can only imitate. The good it can't be perfectly good. It can be more or less good. They can't. They can't be good. They can only imitate the good. Right. 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 Yes. Right. They can't be perfectly ah. good. Yes. Yes. They <laughs> I, have to be to some degree removed from it, and the removals are already dictated <laughs> by these other things. Well, I,
1: I, I think there are. I, I think it's fair to say that it's capable to live more or less good lives. I think there's a difference between good with a capital. This is the thing, right?
0: The more you want to make it something that we can do, the more you want to make it something we can realize, the more you have to water it down. Well, I agree with that. But I think there
1: there is a middle ground to tread between Plato and Aristotle here. I think Plato is right to claim that it's the good that we're pursuing. Um uh, that we're meant to pursue uh but I think Aristotle is also right to think about well what does it mean to you know what does the human good mean, or what does it mean to have political good what what is justice in in that sense and Plato also tries to uh
0: tries well, to look yeah, but of course when Aristotle does that, the result is that Aristotle says slavery's fine, <laughs> and that women aren 't full people that 's what Aristotle ends up saying. <laughs> Yes, because uh, once you start making those kinds of concessions, then you end up eventually conceding so much that you're hardly telling people to do anything different at all. Aristotle
1: does a few things, and one thing is you know, you know, clearly the worst part of his corpus and something which is you know completely abominable, which is trying to justify uh, uh, slavery and sexism um, in, in a way that you know. Lacks, uh, lacks in my view, any clear line of argument there. But oh, I yes. can... I'm,
0: I'm not accusing. I'm not suggesting that you're agreeing yeah, with Aristotle I, on any of that. I, I, the, I just want to make the, the, the point, point about Aristotle. That, I, yeah, yeah. That we, of course, we have to live on Earth and we have to live in bodies, and so we have to we have to find some way of getting going and some way of doing things, right? But I think that we do it best when we remember that what we are trying to do is something we can't do. Or can't quite do. Can't quite fully do. It's degrees. I think. I. I wonder
1: if this argument you're putting forward, Benjamin, is a bit unplatonic. I kind of wanted to come to Plato's defence here. Aren't there degrees of reality? Plato says that there are degrees of reality, and reality for Plato is defined by goodness, because goodness is the spring of being, um, in a sense. And everything, insofar as it has reality, has reality insofar as it imitates the good. And so there are degrees of reality, degrees of goodness for Plato. And in that way, uh, I think it's less of a blunt, okay, human beings aren't good and, uh, and form is good. I mean, clearly, form is uh, for Plato perfectly good, but human beings aren't perfectly good, but there's still that imitation that involves but, but a big
0: part of this is is remembering that you're not that you're not there, and it's remembering that you're not there that causes you to reassess and reevaluate right and so if you focus on The extent to which you are there, then that becomes a pride which gets in the way of thinking about the extent to which you're not. Well, I I think both views,
1: I think we should find a balance between these things.
0: I I, I think there is a danger of being. Well, well, the value value of doing this is thinking about the degree to which you have not achieved the balance. And once you start going, well, I have the balance in this respect or that respect, then that starts to become an excuse for retaining the imbalance.
1: Well, I, I see,
0: but I mean, there's surely there are dangers of both extremes. I mean, one, well, I've got. Well, to... is it an extreme to say that we ought to continue to focus on balance? No, well, rather than focus on the extent to which we already have the good. One reason we're focusing on balance
1: here is because of Aristotle's concept of the golden mean, which is a way of, I think, I would argue, a way of applying Platonism rather than departing from it. And the ways well, in which he to, applies to it. Yeah.
0: But if you take the golden mean too seriously, then it becomes not a basis for continuing to try to make things better, but a basis for saying that you've already got there. I,
1: I it, it, yeah, I kind of want to say something vaguely Machiavellian here that we can't actually be perfectly good in politics, and we can't seek perfection. And I think that of course I, I think that you know Plato isn't seeking perfection. Uh, well, for that reason, yeah.
0: politics is not principally motivated by what is good.
1: Uh, y- and that's yes. why if
0: you want to bring what's good into politics uh, but I think the re- it, it is a very difficult uh, thing to do. I think the rejection and of it the requires good yeah yeah consistent effort. But, but
1: the rejection of the good here Benjamin that you in politics that you're proposing Benjamin in a way I think is the product of a, a, a kind of a perfectionist account of uh, Plato that means that humans that I think to to to, to quote what you just said that humans can't be uh, can't can't be good. I think humans can be good. They just can't be perfectly good, and I, I think there are degrees of goodness here. And one, I would say, one merit of um, what Aristotle does in the better chapters of, of of the Politics is to propose a mixed regime where you've got. Different elements, a monarchic element, an aristocratic element, and a democratic element. And in more modern language, you've got some centralization, but you've also got accountability there. And you've also got, importantly, a kind of class balance that Aristotle um, um, proposes there. Um, And while I think it is easy to argue today that. Uh, maybe the problem is class division itself rather than imbalance among classes. I think it's also certainly the case that short of that, short of a transcendence of the class structure, a balance is better than imbalance. And Plato doesn't quite acknowledge that because he doesn't really give well, the producers political power, whereas Aristotle we're really, does.
0: We're really doing a glass half full, glass half empty thing. We're describing more or less the same situation. I think we are. Yeah, Yeah. But I'm advocating taking a more negative attitude to
1: it. Yes, and I'm advocating taking a more positive attitude right. to it, which I, sense. I yeah. think
0: that a negative attitude is generative and yeah. I like being in the negative place I, I, and you yes. don't like being in the negative no, place. No, I, do, I uh, don't. I, I, like, I, I like hope and optimism. I, I think both. I think in the end, it's good to have a balance between the two. Uh, well, I think to some degree, you know, some people need to feel, I think, uh, I, I, some people need to feel hope to really believe in the good. Some people have to believe that the good is gettable to really affirm it. Uh, Mm. And I think that a lot of that stems from the level of epistemic confidence that you have in the good. If you Mm. really have a lot of epistemic confidence in it, then you don't have to be able to point to it and go, there it is. Mm. It's if you have less epistemic confidence then to shore up the lack of epistemic confidence you have to be able to point to it and go there it is. Right? Mm. And I think there's a danger in pointing to it and going there it is because wherever it is it also is not. Mm. And I think that to to move toward the good it is more important to see where it isn't than where it is. Okay. But to feel to feel confident and to feel invigorated and to feel good about life it's more important to see where it is than where it isn't. I,
1: I think people are a mixture of both. and I think peop- I, Yes, I think, they are. I think most people are neither as optimistic as I am, nor as pessimistic as you are, Benjamin. I think most people are mixtures of the two. Uh, or at least, even if everybody uh, is either pessimistic or optimistic, that means that we have to attend to both the optimistic and the pessimistic temperaments of people. And we need a political yes, message that reflects that. Yes, that's a fair
0: that. argument. That's a fair argument. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give you that point.
1: So hopefully we've reached a a balance in the end between
0: well, with,
1: with, between these two temperaments. This,
0: this tension in, in the way that we do things is productive. Yes, I think, it is. Uh, has always been helpful. I always tend to find the the problem the problems, and you tend to try to find the synthesis, and then I tend to go, but is that really the synthesis? Uh, and that's part of how we how we do. Things. I think you synthesize so, an awful lot too, Benjamin. Well. Maybe, but I'm not satisfied with my (laughs) sentence. Yeah. So, uh, I I think that this probably about wraps us 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 up for today. Of course, we could have maybe said a little bit more about bureaucratization, but I think mainly the point has been made that it's kind of the spread of this impersonal way of doing things. Yes, but detached from you know detached from morality, detached from religion, detached from other things, which would have made it feel more alive to us yes, and yes. more invigorating and helped us find meaning and purpose in it. Without those things, it doesn't help us find meaning and purpose. And so we are looking for meaning and purpose elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Uh, and f- right? for Ve- and yeah. this
0: for Weber leads to the proliferation of the many gods and demons, right? Yeah. Because if we have to find this purpose elsewhere, Then we have to find other things to believe in, but to believe in in a very serious way because we are believing beings. We are not uh, beings that can drop value uh, or can reduce value to a purely aesthetic game. That doesn't satisfy us. We have to believe in them as gods, as demons, as something that really matters. Mm. So our values have to be more thick and substantive and moralistic and theological uh, than some of the more aesthetic values, which come out of um, Nietzsche or Rant or, or some of that other discourse.
2: Mm, yeah.
0: I think, I think that more or less gets us where we need to go. Yeah. And of course, yeah. what we're going to do next is we're going to come back to the Frankfurt School again. We're going to do some late Frankfurt School stuff. And of course, this emphasis on bureaucracy and on instrumental rationality, right? For Weber, this is just a consequence of where we are, and it's something that we have to manage and deal with right? We have to find a way to re-enchant ourselves and get ourselves excited again, right? And then we have to manage that enchantment so that it doesn't cause a bunch of trouble politically, right? But for Weber, all of that is just stuff to be managed because the modern state is not fundamentally a problem. For a lot of these theorists of the late Frankfurt school, this instrumental rationality is not just something to be managed, but is an acute problem. And a lot of their thoughts about instrumental rationality initially come out of engaging with Weber. So we're going to play around with that some more and and focus more on the later Frankfurt theorists. Our previous episode on the Frankfurt School, we did a lot of earlier people writing in the 30s about Nazi Germany. We're going to do more post-war, more post-war Frankfurt School on the next episode. Mm -hmm. And we hope that you'll join us for that. And we hope that you've had a good time. And... Uh, Of course, if you want to support the show, it's patreon.com backslash political theory 101, all lowercase, no space. Thanks for joining us today, guys, and have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, everyone.
0: Bye.